Good morning. It's Monday, April 24th. It's 8.37 in the morning here in New York City. You're listening to WKCR-FM and WKCR-HD. That's 89.9 on the dial here in New York City, as well as WKCR.org online. My name is Josh Kazali. I'm the host of Monday Morningside, and we have a good show for you today. Um, it's been a little bit of a hectic time here at WKCR, but we're starting to get back in the swing of things after... Um, a really, really uh, impressive uh, commitment to our fundraising week. Um, all of our programmers worked really hard on that, and thank you to all the listeners who supported at home. Um, but now we're kind of getting back in the swing of things for the end of the year, and swing of things quite literally as we just had our Charles Mingus birthday broadcast. We will have tomorrow our Ella Fitzgerald birthday broadcast, and then on the 29th, it's our Duke Ellington birthday broadcast. So... Uh, the rest of April will be swinging quite heavily, I believe. Um, but anyways, today we have a really fabulous show. Um, later, you're going to hear my conversation with Alana Grant Elster, who is the film critic at the Columbia Spectator and the, the director of the undergraduate Obscura Film Festival, um, which just happened th- over the weekend. And then you'll also hear uh, another sports update from Skylin Rabin Birnbaum. And we have an update with the Red Balloon Preschool, um, which has been an ongoing issue throughout the year. Uh, Millie Hopkins bring us the, the report from that. But for the first segment, I have um, a, a recording from Iris Shang, who went to the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race, um, who held a rally last Thursday, April 20th, in favor of the departmentalization of that center, um, which is also called CSER for the Center of Study of Ethnicity and Race. Um, departmentalization has been an ongoing issue for CSER. It's um, essentially since its inception, it's pushed to become a department because of the sort of um, the favor that brings with the administration. Um, it's a great segment. Uh, once again, it's brought to you by Irish Shang. Um, hope you continue listening and have a good morning. That is the sound of students rallying for the departmentalization of CSER, the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race. And while the faces are new and the call for departmentalization comes with a renewed fervor today, the demand is one maintained from the 1986 hunger strikes, a demand that has still not been realized. Protest and change are at the heart of the Columbia community, though not something that is often appreciated by Columbia administration. The history of Columbia is inseparable from race and ethnicity, and the history of Columbia protests reflects that. The famous 1968 protests began over the creation of a gym in Morningside Park, one with a separate entrance for Harlem residents. Slightly less well-known are the protests and 15-day hunger strike of 1996, a strike for the creation of a Department of Ethnicity and Race Studies, something that has still not come to fruition. Notably, there was also a brief hunger strike in 2007, endorsed by the original 96 protesters, calling again for that full departmentalization of the new Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race, along with calls for the university to stop their plans to expand into West Harlem with the planned and now-built Manhattanville campus. Negotiations in the original protests involved threats of a suspension and expulsion of the exhausted students, and the end result was not the department they demanded. But before delving into the current push for this denied demand, you have to understand the importance of the study of ethnicity and race. 
Nikita Leosoliba is a member of the Student Advisory Board to Caesar, something unique to the center, set up in the original negotiations. Here's a portion of her speech where she reflects on the importance of Caesar. It's not a glitch when movement sensor sinks don't turn on for black and brown hands. It's racism in the programming. But disproportionate wealth in the hands of white people is not accidental. The racism that we face in this institution, from classmates, from professors, and from administrators, all stems from and reinforces racist systems of power. Caesar teaches us to see them, to question them, and to push back against them. Victoria Today is a master's student studying Caesar. In fact, they're the only black master's student in the program. Today remarks on the situation of the center, saying, It's not a good look for Columbia to deny resources to Caesar while actively causing harm to the communities that ethnic studies prioritizes. Our scholarship deserves to be fully supported by academic institutions because the study is high stakes. Columbia is a powerful institution that gatekeeps access to resources, but these resources belong to us and we will fight to redistribute them to Caesar. Ethnic studies departments give us power and that's worth fighting for. At the rally, Elizabeth Uyang and Shauna Redmond spoke, both professors affiliated with but not hired by Caesar. It struck me during the rally that most professors would never have to take it to the streets, or in this case, college walk, in order to have their labor recognized and their subjects validated. And that this is something unique to race and ethnicity studies because the university is continuously invalidating its place in academia. Professor Shauna Redmond had this to say about the importance of ethnic studies. Those who capitalize on the dismissal, detention, ignorance, suppression, diminishment, and refusal are not wrong in their belief that to know about our creations and world-making is to fundamentally reinvent the terms of order. This is our project and our praxis. Our work is to challenge all oppressions, all efforts in assault on the identities that some believe can be legislated into oblivion or violated unto death. Our work is to challenge all conditions of servitude and enclosure. Our work is to reinvent our relationships to the earth and to one another towards something revolutionary, which is to say something absolutely different, absolutely communal, absolutely sustainable. To engage in the committed study of race is to live in antagonism with predominant formations of power. And so it must be. But it seems that the university does not see that. Caesar board member Grace Fox had this to say. Every year between 1995 and now, the choice to not departmentalize Caesar has not been a passive one, but an active one. This university's administration has actively decided that ethnic studies does not matter, that Native American studies does not matter, that Latino and Asian American studies do not matter, that comparative ethnic studies does not matter, that we do not matter. But we are done. We are done begging to be respected and valued. We deserve to have our voices heard and our identities recognized in academia. Nikita in her speech also spoke to the need for departmentalization, saying the following. Ethnic studies is inherently interdisciplinary, sure, but it's also a discipline in its own right, and departmentalization would be the recognition of that. 
Departmentalization is not just a change in title. Departmentalization would give Caesar funding to have more than one classroom or professor, give them the power to hire their own professors, and it would validate the status of ethnic studies as something of scholarly merit. Here's a bit more on this from Victoria's speech. I thought Caesar would be my intellectual home, but it just doesn't have the resources it needs to adequately support me. I'm here to study systems of power, but the resources I need to do that are all outside Caesar. As much as Columbia puts out statements and notes their support of students of color, the center, and the study of race and ethnicity, the actions the institution takes, or rather the lack thereof, seem to paint a different picture. The process to departmentalization is complicated and long. The co-director of the center, Carl Jacoby, spoke to me at the rally explaining that even though there was an academic review last year in which experts from peer institutions came in to evaluate the center and unanimously recommended departmentalization, that there is still a long process ahead to actually achieve that. Jacoby said the following on the difference between a potential department and the current center. The departments really are eternal too. You can't, one of the concerns we've always had is the centers come and go, and in theory, a center like Caesar could go. The rally started with a lion dance, the drums of which can be heard through this piece, and ended with dancing led by Sabor, the music of which can be heard in the background of Carl Jacoby in that audio. But the point of the rally was to show that students care, that students are invested in the departmentalization of the center, and to call for a public statement from the college and administration in favor of departmentalization. Executive Vice President of Arts and Sciences and Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, Amy Hungerford, and Dean of Columbia College, Joseph Surrett, had email correspondence with the organizers beforehand and were in attendance at the rally. Dean Surrett had the following to say. So I'm here just as an affirmation of the importance of this work. The Student Advisory Board is in ongoing conversations with Surrett, Hungerford, and others, and the Center is working on going through the process of proposing departmentalization with the hope that the change in president of the university will afford them an opportunity to finally realize this demand from the 1996 hunger strike. Professor Redmond seemed to capture the dedication that could be seen in this rally with the following statement. We want for no more public platitudes meant to pacify. No more paper policies by which our value and safety become bureaucracy. We want action to match our conviction, and we want it now. Students have been calling for a Department of Race and Ethnicity Studies since before the 15-day hunger strike in 1996. In some ways, the protests of 96 have never ended because there has been an ongoing call to the university to finally realize this demand ever since. The rally on Thursday drew a substantial crowd, and the Student Advisory Board intends to keep holding events to bring attention to the effort. But it's still unknown when the hunger of the 96 strikers and the vast many students who have gone through this school since for a Department of Ethnicity and Race Studies will be satiated. For WKCR, this is Iris. Huge thanks to Iris for getting the story there. Um, some great reporting that she did on that, that story. Um, if you want more information on how you can get involved with Caesar, you can find uh, more information at scser.columbia.edu. That's their website. Um, I also wanted to note that if you go onto Spotify, you can uh, look up Monday Morningside, and on the November 28th episode, uh, Grace 80 read the, the article, A Department of Our Own, um, which was a blue and white article from November of last year. It's a really good article that does a good job of explaining not only the history of um, of Caesar and that push for de- departmentalization, but um, also has a lot of great quotes from faculty 
And um, I highly recommend checking that out if you want to know more about what Caesar is, why they're arguing for this, and um, more about that struggle. Um, moving on to another Columbia protest. Um, a few weeks ago, um, there was a student rally in protest of the eviction of the Red Balloon Learning Center. Um, now, this eviction was announced in summer of 2022 and is scheduled for August of this year, and it sparked months of protest and outcry by university uh, affiliates. Um, it was referenced in a in a New Yorker article of, in January, um, and it's the parents and community members have been fairly outspoken in protest of this eviction, um, which has and the preschool which has been sort of celebrated for affordability and accommodation um, is going to close after more than fifty years. Um, our reporter Millie Hopkins covered the the rally on April 6th. So this is a few weeks old, but um, I think it still is bears some truth, and um, it's the most recent uh, update in this ongoing story. Um, so you can be sure to hear more about this story, which has come out on, on this show before, um, and this is the most recent development. Hi guys, welcome back to Found Sound. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Millie and this is a weekly show of on-the-street journalism that I do for Josh's Monday Morning Side News and Arts here at WKCR. The message of this rally was that we need consistency and momentum, so I'm just going to jump right in and this is a pretty no bells and whistles, no narrativizing episode. I'm just going to share what happened, some conversations I had with attendees and organizers. But if you don't get anything else out of the episode, it's that the university really needs to see that students care about the issue and are willing to make a fuss. So if you can, please come to the student worker solidarity meetings on Tuesdays in Hamilton Hall at 8 p.m. and show up to whatever events you see publicized about standing with the Red Balloon Preschool. But also just bring it up in your classes, bring it up in your clubs. You can email the dean, you can email your advisors, you can email your professors. Just keeping the conversation going and making it an issue on campus is really, really important. And without further ado. Thursday, April 6th, around 6 p.m., and a group of students are rallying around the statue of the goddess Athena, who is the patron saint of Columbia University. The statue is both a photo op for tourist groups, prospective families, the de facto mascot, and the picturesque, symbolically charged site of a lot of Columbia organizing. Of course, Athena is popularly known as the patron goddess of wisdom, reason, and intelligence. She shows up in plays arguing for justice, law, and fairness, plays that are part of the Columbia Corps, nonetheless. The irony is not lost on me, nor I think anyone here, as two undergraduates from the Student Worker Solidarity tie red balloons to Athena's hands. Red balloons are the mascot of the preschool that Columbia is evicting. We are all here for a rally to educate students on how to show support for the Red Balloon Preschool, a not-for-profit institution in West Harlem that Columbia is trying to Um, Hi, I'm Maeve Cunningham. I'm a sophomore at Barnard. Um, and a member of SWS, Student Worker, Student Worker Solidarity. So basically, Red Balloon Preschool is a really important childcare facility in West Harlem. A lot of Columbia faculty, just workers, and even like grad students, their children attend Red Balloon. A mom from the Red Balloon is here, explaining how the school is one of the only not-for-profit preschools in the area that's affordable, which accepts disabled children, 
meal vouchers, and stays open late enough for full-time working parents. It stays open till six, whereas most schools close by three. That's especially important for single mothers. In fact, I spoke with two women in the crowd of mostly students who had been parents there many years ago and now live in the area. My name is Gussie Kapner. Carol Greenberg. Both of us were among the original parents at the Red Balloon 50 years ago. Uh, and at the time that the Red Balloon was founded, um, I was working at the social work school, and the social work school was very involved in trying to get the university to meet the daycare needs of its faculty, students, staff, and the community. And the Red Balloon was one of those efforts. Uh, I was a, a parent back in the early 70s, and um, I needed to go to work, and there was nothing. This was where before there was municipally vetted daycare centers that didn't exist. And uh, this one did. And as a result, I've been able to work and put my kids through college, and I owe it all to the Red Balloon. <laughs> there are rumors that Columbia plans to open its own for-profit preschool where the Red Balloon was, though that hasn't been verified by the university. They said that it's because there's been changes in leadership. There, it's like an incredibly vague reason that essentially boils down to they have no reason. So they're just saying that because they want to create a for-profit preschool and there's actually no real good reason to evict Red So Balloon. Columbia wants a for-profit preschool to move into the Red Balloon space. That's like their tentative plan that we've heard when reaching out for solidarity statements that people have responded saying, actually, we heard from Columbia that they're opening a new preschool. Like This is a, em emblematic of a larger problem with Columbia's expansion into Harlem. This is, Columbia isn't nulling this preschool entirely. They're replacing it with their own preschool. But Columbia, of course, already runs its own preschool. You've probably seen the kids running around the Columbia lawns during their supervised playtime in their little safety vests. Columbia has the Teachers College, which is a graduate school, and also offers an education major through Barnard. Columbia then is in the business, and it is a business, of educating educators. What is it teaching them about the ethics of teaching itself? Mila Rahim was at the rally and is an education major at Barnard. As an education major, I think it's really important to also think about like how this affects the teachers along with the, the kids, because there's, especially in preschool, teachers have so much impact on the development of the child. And if you get rid of Red Balloon, you get rid of the influence that teachers have on these children. And those teachers will get pushed out and unemployed, and then they are put in these these institutions like uh, for-profit preschools where they don't actually care about the teacher, they just care about the money. Um, and I've just learning about Red Balloon, um, I, I feel like there it is a very deep staple in our community in regards to how they advocate for children. I also think as an education major, we don't talk about this enough. Uh, like this has not been mentioned in any of my classes whatsoever. And that I feel like is a problem. So if you are an education major, you're even just at a student at Columbia, you need to be talking about this in your classes. doesn't even matter if it's on topic. You can bring this up and it will have some sort of contribution to the conversation that you're having because it influences us and we are responsible for this in some way, shape or form. And that was the sentiment from everyone at the rally. Students, student organizers, parents from the Red Balloon, Harlem community members. Columbia students not only need to stand up or show solidarity, but to really make a fuss and make a problem on campus. Every day, like 500 people come here for a tour. You could just pull up and talk to someone about it. This level of um, the executive area in the Columbia administration. And so this needs the only thing that can change this is not some vote but student support holding columbia accountable um we talked about sit-ins and teach and sit-ins today and occupations today and the only way that works is if students support this this term stakeholder kept coming up at the rally 
It means anybody who's a part of an organization where the organization couldn't exist without them. And it's a really important framework. It implies a kind of mutuality that's way bigger than just a tuition for diploma exchange. Columbia relies on its students for physical bodies, for reputation, for academic output, for its RAs, for its organizers, for its club leaders. That's a power we can and have to yield back accordingly. So for a university that has made commitments about anti-racism and, you know, partnering in some way with Harlem and the community around its campus, I think any sort of uh, exposure that this gets will really reflect so poorly on Columbia that I'm hopeful that that can really push the needle. I was excited to see kind of, especially in my last year in undergrad at Columbia, um, I think there's just like sort of a more energized activist undergraduate population and I think I was impressed that this connection had kind of been forged um, with parents at the school. We meet every Tuesday at 8 p.m. in Philosophy 612. We would love to have all sorts of voices, people to inspire projects and working groups. Friends, you've been part of our community. Every child deserves to feel like that. Every child matters. And it shouldn't matter if you are typical, if you don't have special medical needs, if your family is healthy. Every child deserves an education, and that's what we're So thank you all so much. Without hope, hope is the only thing we have. Don't let, don't let despair make you inactive. Don't let despair bog you down. There have been worse conditions that we have bettered through movements like this, and they wouldn't exist without hope, without love for each other, without love for the future, without love for the world. So yes, do recruit your friends and remind them that there's only power in numbers and that there, there's only hope in numbers. So uh, just a reminder. We'll be back. We'll be back. We'll be back. We'll be back. Thanks so much for listening, and please keep supporting the Red Balloon. Come to SWS meetings on Tuesdays. And lastly, because I promised the show would have found music every week, here are some drums from a live accompanist here in New York. His name's Dave, and it reminds me of the sound of walking together in solidarity. Thanks to Millie for getting that story there. Um, I also wanted to note that on again on the on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you look up Monday Morningside, um, the most recent episode, which was April third, has an interview conducted by Isaac Stiepelman and Ashwin Murat, um, who interview Anna Pernish Reber, who I believe was maybe quoted um, in Millie's segment. Um, but you can find a lot more information about. Um, the Red Balloon, and um, the ongoing eviction process. It's a little bit more of a formal interview, so um, you can get a lot of information there, and it's another good resource. Um, But yeah, the Red Balloon story is something that is just continuing to develop and continuing to become increasingly more urgent as that eviction date expected in August um, is growing closer and closer. Um, so So there's certain to be more updates throughout the summer about that. Um, once again, you're listening to WKCR-FM and WKCR-HD1. Um, that's 89.9 on the dial here in New York City, as well as WKCR.org online. It's now 9 o'clock in the morning here in New York City. My name is Josh Kazali. I'm the host of Monday Morningside. Now, um, the next segment I have is an interview with Alana Grant-Elster, 
who is the film critic at the Columbia Spectator and the festival director of Obscura Film Festival, um, which was last Friday, April 21st in Shermerhorn Hall. Now, Obscura is a new name for um, a kind of uh, older festival, which was usually called the either the Columbia University Undergraduate Film Festival or the Columbia University Film Productions um, Film Festival, which is the undergraduate group. Um, the film festival had three different blocks, um, which was another part of its rebranding. It had evolutions in my body and the art of making it. Um, we talked about Alana's experiences at festivals like Sundance and South by Southwest and the way she incorporated those into the programming of the festival. Um, so here's my, cl- my conversation with Alana. I am here with Alana Grant Elster. You can find her film reviews in um, the Columbia Spectator. But most recently, you were the, um, the festival director at Obscura Film Festival. How are you doing today, Alana? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, congrats on not just uh, your writing, but also film festival. Obscura. Thank you. That was exciting. Um, now, could you just talk a little bit about how you got involved with Obscura um, because it was actually kind of a rebranding of what was formerly this a more uh, general, I guess, Columbia Film Festival. Yeah. So last year I co-directed uh, CUFP, our undergraduate film production kind of club, uh, their film festival, which used to happen before COVID and kind of stopped for a little bit. Um, so I took on the challenge last year of trying to get it started again. Um, And we had like a pretty decent turnout and it was a great event. We had a lot of student filmmakers show up. Um, But in entering this year, when I decided I wanted to do it again, um, I decided to rebrand a bit and go a different direction, make it feel a bit more like a space for artists um, and not just kind of like something academic or, you know, something super rooted in Columbia. Um, I wanted it to be rooted in art and people who appreciate making things. So um, I took on a team of five really impressive, amazing people who helped me take on that process. Um, And I'm pretty happy with the festival, which just happened this Friday. Right. Yeah, I was going to say it was just this Friday. um, And I guess I'm getting you right after the festival. Uh, What how do you feel? I mean, first of all, having it (laughs) over with, but also just, um, you know, seeing it sort of enacted in real life. Yeah, I think it makes me really excited about the future of the festival because all of the, you know, like changes and initiatives that we started this year, I I see only continuing into the future. Um, I was really happy with the content we got this year, too. I feel like we had such a wide array of different projects and we had a lot of like experimental films or kind of art house cinema. We had we had slow cinema. We had, you know, all different sorts of things that that felt like people who were really, really passionate about film, which made me happy to see. And also it was great being able to engage with some of the directors. I led Q&As after each panel with some of our artists. Um, and I think that was maybe one of my favorite parts of the festival. Right, yeah. And I guess speaking more like um, in detail about what the changes that went on in creating, I mean, first of all, it has a new name. Do you want to talk about yeah, like, yeah. where that so, came from? Honestly, it came from a lot of a lot of brainstorming. Um, I visited California for work last summer and I took a picture next to this like 
giant right I, ob- saw this, yeah. I saw this on your instagram yeah like-, like this obscura display and when i after i kind of hired the festival team we were brainstorming new ideas because you know columbia undergraduate film festival is cuff which there's like columbia university film festival mm-hmm. and we wanted something that felt distinct and right. like it had its own identity um so we settled on obscura because i think it captured the kind of like real love of cinema that we mm-hmm. wanted to uh put into this and also i don't know it's it's obscure um right, yeah right. we thought it was just a fun new name right and that's true that the thing with this this is the columbia university undergraduate film festival because it has to be distinct a from you know the grad school film right. festival, which they do their own thing that is you know um its own uh can of worms and then there's also Athena Film Festival, which is a whole other thing. So it's I, I totally see that you're trying to kind of carve out your own space, um, particularly on this pretty small campus we have yeah. here. But we had a mix of like GS, Barnard, mm-hmm. CC, Cs. We had kind of like all of our um, population represented, which was really nice to see. Right. Yeah, that is that's really great. Um, and yeah, about you, you talked about the content and I noticed that you have Part of another big change was that you had these three different blocks, and I, the blocks blocks of the film festival are evolutions in my body, um, the art of making it. What what I guess went into creating these these segments uh, in the festival? Yeah, so I think we knew we wanted to kind of create um, organization within the program. Um, so it felt like it flowed in a way that was really meaningful and specific. Like any good real film festival has curation and there's, you know, attention paid to the flow. Um, so I think in terms of like, you know, putting people in a room for five hours, splitting into blocks made sense. And then as um, we started kind of going through the submissions that we'd accepted, there were certain themes that emerged. Um, the art of making it, a lot of those films kind of centered around Um, film itself or different art forms or creation of some sort of you know creativity Um, and then evolutions Um, evolutions is kind of broad but a lot of those played with memory or transformation in some sort of sense Um, and then in my body um, I think I, I loved that section because we had a mix of like body horror and disability narratives and all sorts of different projects that like focused on rooting someone in their body um so while they were very kind of broad categories and all of the films within them were totally different tonally um i think it helped anchor some sort of theme throughout and made it feel like a more cohesive identity right yeah and i'm i'm hearing you know trying to create this more cohesive uh unique structure and i'm i was thinking a lot about you know you've been to a lot of film festivals just this year you've been to we were talking about it before this, you've been to Sundance, you've been to South by Southwest. Um, we met earlier at the New York Film yes. Festival where you, um, we did another segment. I guess, like, what things do you take away from these, you know, professional, um, you know, big major industry uh, film festivals? And how, I guess how do you apply that to what is, a, you know, a smaller scale here at Columbia? Yeah, so I think attending festivals as press has given me a particular insight because um, I think sometimes when you're kind of just going as a a, a viewer, mm-hmm. um, you don't really see the inner workings behind right. it and how much goes into it. So I think a big inspiration for the amount of organization and rebranding this year was my experience at Sundance because that had been like a lifelong dream of mine to be able to attend and let alone to be able to go as press and get to go behind the scenes was 
really transformative for me um, and kind of gave me a lot of insight into how to sustain people's attention um, and how to inspire people, which I think obviously events like Sundance and South by Southwest are really focused on cultivating storytellers and artistry. It's not just, you know, you're going to the movie theater and here are all these big budget movies that everyone already knows about um watching like shorts collections watching um like debut filmmakers get to right. talk about their pieces and show them in these amazing venues um that's like a palpable feeling and being mm-hmm. in those spaces um really just inspired me to try to capture a little bit of that and give it to the columbia community right yeah it is it is a really impressive feat to like try and create this this uh it's a festival and it's it it takes it takes a lot of people i mean um i guess what are some of the things that you you took away from this first um i guess inaugural obscura film fest and are looking forward to applying next year um honestly i think the biggest challenges encountered were logistical and organizational Mm. skills like on columbia's campus getting a space like the space right. is used for Athena or the space is used for the grad school film uh, festival it takes a year in advance of mm-hmm. booking. Um, so a lot of the logistical stuff um, really took, you know, calling people multiple times and sending emails to multiple different departments. Right. Um, so I think now that we kind of fell into a bit of a rhythm and understand what we're going for next year, I think organizationally, uh, I'd hope to be a lot cleaner. I'm also hoping next year um, to have some sort of social events leading up to the Mm. festival. Um, Something that the team and I talked about was the idea of like, you know, parties or socials leading up to it uh, to just get people talking about their projects, talking about film and get people excited. Um, You know, all of the the major film festivals I've been to have kind of like an opening night party or Mm -hmm. things along those lines. So that's something I'm hoping to do next year. And I'm also just hoping to solidify the brand identity. Um, going into this year, right. I made I made a very extensive Pinterest board of like all of the style inspiration I wanted for our graphic designer, who's amazing. Um, and you know, I really wanted to curate this specific vibe. Um, I was going for something kind of like '90s grunge. Mm-hmm. That was the goal a little bit. Um, it my like mood board had like a lot of like. Um, Kenneth Anger, um, we had, what did we have? We had like a Cocktail Twins poster. Like it was very, um, New York kind of grunge nineties art scene that I wanted to capture a little bit in, you know, the least pretentious, like annoying way possible. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, the night before the festival, I like modge podged 150 matchbooks, um, because I was like, we need merchandise we need something that people right. are going to want to like hold on to yeah. and who doesn't love a matchbook yeah no that's very <laughs> true yeah yeah no i mean that that the struggle to kind of try to to brand yourself um especially i think the film the film community at columbia is, is a really interesting uh, oh, yeah. body and trying to kind of pull from um what is very like kind of disparate uh groups i think I mean, I don't know. I, I wrote a, a piece for the Blue and White about... I, I read your piece, which actually, is, yeah. Which, I mean, and I've thought about it a lot. And it's just so interesting to try and... I know the struggle of trying to kind of discern a sense of, like, who these people are. I guess, what what sense did you get of that um, Friday, Friday night? 
I think Friday night was really interesting to see the kind of Columbia film community come together because it is so many different types of people interested in many different things. You have people who are really craft focused and who spend all of their time at Columbia off campus, like working on films with NYU students or working downtown and kind of like are very hands on in the production side of things. And then you also have people who are a little bit more academic in their approach, which I think kind of interests me about the Columbia community is you have a lot of people who study theory so heavily in their coursework and you can see that kind of reflected in the media um we we had like a piece of slow cinema that we accepted um Mm. that I thought was was really interesting and kind of uniquely Columbia in its pacing um but yeah I think I I saw a commonality in terms of people willing to experiment with form that Mm. really excited me um you know people spinning a comedy or you know spinning uh body horror um and i i found that to be really exciting but yeah i i totally agree with you that the film community here is really spread about like there's not any sort of cohesive body or identity um because you have you also have like different brands of like film nerds right Right, like you have the people who are you know, vary into like Godard or Fellini, mm-hmm, but you sure. you have your like Scorsese fans, and then you're you right, have your right. like you know modern indie cinema groups. So trying to figure out a cohesive way to get all of those people together and excited about the same things was our challenge, and I think that's why I went with a kind of like general artistic New York sort of feeling. Right, and that's also what's so great about those sort of you kind of creating this like. Co- cohesion in the, the themes because again like you said the the thing that is unique about the the Columbia film experience is that it is so unique and like you're getting so many different experiences and when you're on set with someone it's can be um, someone with a totally different um, experience or relation Definitely. to the medium as you which I think is part of what is kind of fun about it yeah um, so yeah I, th- I think it sounds like you tried to turn that into a, a strength in a way that I think is is strong. Um, great. Well, I also just wanted to ask you a little bit more about, you know, the the weather is starting to warm up. People <laughs> are looking to cool off in the movie theaters. Yeah. Um, and you've seen, um, you told me you've seen a lot of movies this year. Um, I've unfortunately been lacking on my viewing. So I guess what's what's coming out soon that I should I should be have on my radar? Um, well, just recently this week in theaters is Sick of Myself, which I mm. got the chance to go to a Q&A at, at IFC, uh, which is amazing. It's this kind of like dark comedy with like elements of horror that sneak up on you. Um, and I found it to just be brilliant. I absolutely love like Scandinavian Norwegian cinema. Um, and I think it felt fresh and unique in a way that I, I hadn't seen. Um, I, I described it in my letterbox review as like a movie for people who have fantasized about all the nice things people will say about them at their funeral, <laughs> um, which, you know, if, if you relate to that sentiment, see sick of myself. Right. Um, in terms of things I'm anticipating coming out, mm-hmm. um, at South by Southwest, I got the chance to see Bottoms, uh, an interview uh, Emma Seligman and Rachel Sennett about it, which was yeah. great for me. That I was I was majorly freaking out. Um, and that I think was my probably favorite like movie theater experience this year so far. Um, the kind of experience where like you can't really hear the lines because people are still laughing about the <laughs> last punchline. Um, it's a fun. It's a romp. It's like a teenage sex comedy that 
I feel like we haven't had this type of like mm. actually funny, actually raunchy, but also like focused on queer people and people of color. We haven't had something like that right. um, in a way that felt like authentic and like actually relatable to young people. Um, so I'm super excited about that. I don't think there's a release date yet, but I've been hearing mumbles that late <laughs> summer is perhaps when that will be coming to our right, screens. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll keep my eyes peeled. Yeah. That. What about something that you, you haven't seen? What are, what are you still waiting to, to catch? Um, I'm still, let's see. I'm, I'm excited about the can lineup. Um, right. I'm excited particularly about Todd Haynes' new project, yes. um, May, December with Natalie Portman. Um, I'm a, I'm a big Natalie Portman fan. Mm-hmm. I love I think she chooses a very interesting body of work. Everything yes. feels very specific and calculated in a way that I'm like, even if it's not my thing, I know I'm going to be fascinated and enthralled and be able to like pick it apart. Yes, um, and, and so Todd yeah. Haynes is exciting. Um, I know a lot of people really, really connected with that Velvet Underground yeah. documentary he made, um, which I think I talked about, man, like a year <laughs> ago, a year and a half ago on WKCR. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, well... Once again, you can read Alana's reviews in the Columbia Spectator. And yeah, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I always love talking film with you. Yes. And uh, stay tuned for next year's Obscura. Oh, I was going to ask. Are there ways that people can watch the films? I guess stay tuned. Yeah, stay ways to stay connected with yes, Obscura. Definitely stay tuned in terms of ways to watch the films because we are looking mm-hmm. for a way to build that out. Um, but you can kind of follow along with what Obscura is doing on Instagram. Um, our at is CU Obscura. CU Obscura on Instagram. Yeah. So stay, stay tuned. Follow the journey. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Alana for talking with me. Once again, you can find her film reviews um, on the Columbia Spectator, um, which is online, and you can read you know, what she thought about various movies. Um, and once again, uh, the Obscura Film Festival did pass, but you can stay tuned for next time by following them at Obscura on Instagram. Um, exciting things in the film community. And for the last segment on today's episode of Monday Morningside... I have um, a report from Skyler, who was at the Yankees game versus the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, This is on the 23rd, so just yesterday, he was at Yankee Stadium um, watching the game. So if if you're looking to get into baseball this summer season, um, Skyler gives you the scoop. Here's that now. Live here at Yankee Stadium as the Toronto Blue Jays are taking on the New York Yankees in the rubber game of a three-game set. Yankees uh, took yesterday's game in walk-off fashion in the bottom of the ninth inning, a single off the bat of B.J. LeMayu. Yankees look to take this series against their division rivals. They have Clark Schmidt going on the mound, uh, and Kevin Gosman is on the bump for the Blue Jays. Clark Schmidt struggled a bit at times during his last couple starts. We'll look to turn his season around today against that potent Blue Jays lineup here at WKCR. We've got all the sights and sounds for you, so stay tuned as we bring you the Yankees against the Blue Jays here from Yankee Stadium. Through five innings, not much offense for either team, but one thing was clear. Clark Schmidt 
was having the bounce back start he needed. Through five innings, he had racked up eight Ks. Uh, listen to him striking out Alejandro Kirk for the second out in the top of the fifth. Clark Schmidt, four and two-thirds scoreless. What are you seeing out of him today? Well, he started out strong, definitely. Uh, first four innings, no men on base, but just gave up a double, so it's not looking too good. How are you liking the feel of the stadium today? Uh, it's a beautiful vibe, beautiful day, nice weather, great place to be. That's five scoreless from Schmidt. How do you like it? I, look, it's a great outing. Five scoreless from him, but I think he's really. I think they got him timed down, and they got to get rid of him. He's going to be hit hard. Through four innings, no runs for the Yankees today. They had no runs through eight innings yesterday. What are you seeing, or what are you not seeing from their hitters today? Well, uh, there's there. They're really trying to make contact, but. Um, not, nothing much yet. Uh, we had that great steal by uh, IKF, but uh, not much, not much. Sir, what's your favorite thing to do at the stadium? Drink beer. What's your favorite thing to eat at the stadium? I'm a traditionalist. Good hot dog. What's your favorite thing to eat at the stadium? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of the strictly kosher hot dogs. In the bottom of the fifth, the Yankees seemed destined to break it open as DJ LeMahieu led off the inning with a double into left field. Uh, but the next three Yankees all struck out, and Kevin Gosman kept the Yankees at zero. In the top of the sixth, things really started to unravel for the Yankees as an unlucky fielding error by shortstop Anthony Volpe was followed by a home run by Vladimir Guerrero Jr and then another home run by Dalton Varsho. Take a listen to the crowd after Varsho hits his blast to right field. Back-to-back -back home runs there for the Blue Jays. What do you think happened? Well, we said last inning they should have taken, should have taken Schmidt out, and that's clearly what they should have done. I'm no Aaron Boone, but Schmidt should have been pulled. That's on him. The Blue Jays added runs in the seventh and ninth innings. Danny Jansen had both ribbies, the first one off a double, the second off of a force out to Oswald Peraza, scoring Matt Chapman. In the bottom of the ninth inning, the Yankees seemed destined to lose this one five to nothing as Anthony Volpe and Aaron Judge both lined out to begin the inning. However, in the with two outs in the bottom of the ninth, the Yankees showed some life off the bat of Anthony Rizzo. Take a listen to what happened next. Two singles followed, one by Glaber Torres and the other by DJ LeMahieu. And the Yankee Stadium crowd was rocking in anticipation of a heroic act. However, Oswaldo Cabrera flied out to third baseman Matt Chapman to end the game, and as a result, the Yankees lost their first series of 2023. After the game, we caught up with manager Aaron Boone on what went right and what went wrong for Clark Schmidt out on the mound today. 
I, I thought he threw the ball great, obviously. Um, you know, went through that lineup a couple times. Really electric, um, really aggressive with his sinker. Um, so I, I thought he threw the ball great. Um, you know, obviously a couple of mistakes got him there, but overall uh, a really strong outing for him. I mean, he was just very aggressive. I, I thought his sinker was really put him in a good place today. Um, you know, and then and then everything worked off of that. So got a good slider going too, but but the sinker um, I thought you know especially against a lot of their their good right-handed hitters really put him in a good spot. Here's Anthony Volpe when asked about the error which led to the two-run home run by Vladimir Guerrero, which opened up the scoring for the Blue Jays. Yeah, that's on me. Um, plays by got to be made, and um, we should be off the field there easy. So um, it's a play that I feel like we make every single day in training and everything like that. So um, I definitely expect myself to make it for me and for, for the team. So Here's Clark Schmidt on how he was so successful out of the gate today against the Blue Jays. Well, when your back's against the wall and you, you kind of haven't been doing your job, you can find ways to motivate yourself. And um, obviously, I wanted to go deeper in games. I wanted to give my team a chance to win. And um, and I was pissed off that I wasn't doing it. So I felt like I was going to carry that rage, you know, kind of that rage in, into today and, and, and to the future of just being able to be on the attack and, and be aggressive. Schmidt disputed that Anthony Volpe's error was the cause of his troubles in the sixth inning. And he looks to build off of this start, at least the good from it and come back and continue to help the Yankees win games. Um, I got to do a better job of being able to pick Volpe up on that and you know 10 out of 10 times he's making that play so um, you know it's it overall it's a good body of work but you know continue to work and, and move on from this one. With the loss the Yankees fall to 13 and 9 third place in the AL East behind Baltimore. Next up they travel to Minnesota where they take on the Twins. Johnny Brito on the mound for the Yankees. Sonny Gray former Yankee on the mound for the Twins. For WKCR at Yankee Stadium, I'm Skylar Rabin-Bernbaum. Thanks to Skylar for getting the report there. Um, I know the whole sports department is very excited to be having those exclusive press passes to baseball games. Um, if you're looking for more sports coverage, we do have a Firing Lion coming up this Thursday where our sports department will be talking about sports local to Columbia, to, to, to New York. It'll be a good time. Um, <clears throat> I know they're excited about that show. Once again, my name has been Josh Kazali. You've been listening to Monday Morningside. That's the last segment I had, um, and that will really conclude today's Monday, April 24th episode of Monday Morningside.